Good to see you. Well, if it's been a long time since you've read a good story, then you might want to reread the book of Esther in the Bible. That's a great story. It is designed by, it's neat not only that history occurred that way, but that the Lord wrote it down or inspired it to be written in such a way that it's a page turner. You can't not read the whole book when you start reading it because it just hooks you and you, it pulls you in. At face value, though, the book seems to be just like its purpose is just sort of how to tell you, tell you the origin of the Feast of, of Purim or Purim, but uh, you, we usually pronounce Purim. And I thought about it. Many Jewish feasts could be summarized in very simple terms. You want to summarize most Jewish feasts? Here's how you do it. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. <laughs> Think about it. Most Jewish feasts, that's it. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Well, that's the book of Esther in a nutshell, but it is so much more than, than just that because it gives us some great insights to not only God's love for his people, but God's love for us. So turn, if you would, with me to the book of Esther, and let's look at, <clears throat> let's look at some of this book. We can't look at the whole thing, obviously, because our purpose in going through in this series is we're just taking a single message from each book of the Bible. Esther could be its own series, but we're going to look primarily at just chapter 4. But, but before we get to chapter 4, let's just kind of set the stage for the story. If you uh, go to Israel, you will likely be taken to a place called Qumran. Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered back in 1947, just prior to the state of Israel becoming a state, which is a wonderful bit of God's providence that they, kept, they were hidden for couple of thousand years until literally the year that Israel was about to become a state. Well, when you look through the Dead Sea Scrolls, you discover something very interesting. Every single book in the Old Testament is represented except Esther. And the reason is probably for the same reason that it was one of the books that was really people struggled with recognizing it being part of the Old Testament canon. Uh, because it never mentions God. It's the only book in the Bible that never mentions God. There's no direct mention of prayer. Uh, it's just this great story, this historical event that occurred in a foreign country, but it has to do with the preservation of the Jews. Well, certainly is Scripture, because ultimately the Lord did allow it into the canon, and we can see that even though God isn't mentioned by name, his thumbprint is all over this book. And it's wonderful because our lives very often feel the same way. We'll turn page after page in our life, and it'll, we'll, we'll be tempted to ask ourselves, Lord, I don't see you here. I, I don't sense you working. And yet when you get a few chapters into it, and then you look back, you see, you see the overarching grand sovereign hand of God in your life, with coincidence stacked upon coincidence stacked upon coincidence that could not be anything but providence. That's the book of Esther, and that's the story of our lives. Well, Esther chapter 1, 
We're not going to read it, but just kind of walk our way really quickly through it. Um, the, the historical context, I don't know if you still have that little chart I gave you back during our Ezra study several weeks back, but Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are all sort of contemporaries together. And the book of Esther actually occurred chronologically between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. There were three returns to the land, and the first return had already occurred, the return under Zerubbabel, going back to the land. God had taken his people into the land, but because of their disobedience, he took them out of the land in the exile, and then there were three returns back into the land. Well, one return's already happened, and then the book of Ezra, uh, uh, Esther occurs, and then two other returns occur after Esther. So the context is the foreign country of Persia, and there is a king named Ahasuerus. There's a great name for your next grandchild, Ahasuerus. Uh, Xerxes is another name for him. You may have a translation that translates it Xerxes, which is a little more of a man's name. You know, Ahasuerus doesn't sound much like a really strong king, but he was a monster of a king, and he really struggled, I think, to uh, maintain his sanity because he was, um, he was a king that people were afraid of, but because he's king, he pretty much had to do what he had, had to do what he said. And I'll give you an interesting historical tidbit. This guy was so, mm, I wouldn't say off his rocker, but so sort of sideways that when, he, when a storm wrecked his fleet, he had the sea flogged 300 times. That'll teach, the, that'll teach it. So this is, the, this is the manner of man that is ruling this country, Ahasuerus or Xerxes. He is the king, and he brings, chapter 1 tells us, for 180 days, or basically six months, he brings in the leaders of his military and it's not just a six-month party, but it is a six-month party and planning session. It's sort of a staff retreat that, in which they plan their war with Greece. And at the, during this uh, uh, party or banquet, he decides that he's going to bring his queen in and have her displayed because she's beautiful. Well, the queen says, I'm not coming in to all those men to... Uh, be gawked at, and she says she's not going to do it. Well, he basically deposes her or uh, dethrones her, and she now she's no longer queen. Well, what we don't have written in the scripture, but when we me mesh history with scripture, we understand that there is a four-year gap between chapter chapters one and chapters two of chapter two of Esther, a four-year gap in which the war with Greece occurred, and in which Ahasuerus lost his fleet and flog the sea. And the, the historian Herodotus tells us that uh, Ahasuerus consoled himself from his loss with his harem, which is why chapter 2 brings us to that subject. He has lost his fleet, he is sort of down, and he consoles himself with his harem. And he remembers, oh yeah, I don't have a queen. And so a suggestion is given now in chapter 2 of how we can replace the queen. And this is the suggestion. Let's basically find all the best-looking virgins in the country. And, and 
and let's make them even prettier with a year of cosmetics. They come in, spend one night with you, and then you get to decide who you'd like to be queen. How does that sound? And the king basically goes, uh, that sounds great. So that's what he did. And that introduces us to Esther. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Esther 2, 5. Now there was at the citadel at Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we are introduced to Esther, the star of the show, and literally the star of the show. That's what her name means. Esther means star. It's prob she's probably named after the Persian goddess Ishtar, but her Jewish name, we're told here, is Hadassah. But she's called Esther. Mordecai takes her in after her parents are killed. We aren't told how, perhaps in the process of the exile. But anyway, she's living with her uncle, or Mordecai, and as a result, she is, um, she is um, an orphan who's now taken in by a family member. But she's beautiful, we're told, and that sets us up for the rest of the chapter, which basically, no big surprise, she becomes queen. But the plot thickens. Chapter 3. Um, the king promotes a man named Haman, who is a pretty arrogant individual and wants everybody to bow down and worship, well not worship, but give homage to him. Maybe it was worship. But in his mind, he, he wanted this type of honor. Mordecai refused to do that. And as a result, Haman hated Mordecai and wanted to kill him. And because Haman had the power, Haman manipulated events to where he got the king to sign an edict that would kill not just Mordecai, but all Jews. We'll take care of this whole Jewish problem. Well, Haman doesn't realize that the queen, Esther, is a Jew. And the king, I guess, that slipped his mind too, because he was thinking about flogging the sea or something. <laughs> but this edict is made, and there was a law, the law of the Medes and Persians, that once you make a rule, you can't go back on the rule. Once you make a law, you can't negate that law. All you can do is add maybe another law to help uh, combat it. But anyway, the law is made, and the date is set, and now the Jews' time clock is ticking to where they will be eradicated. So all that is set up for chapter 4. So let's read, starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, 
And the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. So Mordecai hears the decree against the Jews. He displays the typical signs of mourning that Jews would do. They would tear their clothes. They would wail out loud, wear sackcloth. But not only that, the text tells us that they fasted. Now, sometimes the, uh, the thought is that one of the reasons that Esther doesn't mention God is that it would have been written in a context in a foreign culture that if it had mentioned God, the book would never have made the press. And so it's written to people who kind of knew once you read about it, once you read it, you would understand what's happening under, under the surface. But those who didn't know anything about the Lord, they would read the book and they just think it's a book. But to read that these people are fasting, if you knew what goes along with fasting, then you would understand they're also praying. Because the purpose of fasting was not just fasting. The purpose of fasting was focused prayer. And so this is what Mordecai and these other Jews begin to do. These are the reactions of a spiritual people. Esther as well, when she hears about it, she is in great anguish. Look at uh, verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hatak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hatak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go in to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. So, Mordecai does several things here. First of all, he answers her questions about uh, the what and the why it happened. He shows her a copy of the edict. But the main thing he does, all of that is to get her to use her position as queen to go in and to plead on behalf of the Jews. And notice that it says... Uh, to plead with him for her people. Esther is basically going to have to admit to the king or to remind the king that I'm Jewish and this edict affects your queen as well as her people. But there is a big problem about going in front of the king. It's not just as easy as walking in and saying, Hi, honey, it's me. Look at verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter, so that he may live. And I've not been summoned to come to the king for these thirty days." They related Esther's words to Mordecai. So you can understand why she'd be a little reluctant to go in to her husband. This isn't just a husband and a wife. This is a king. This is a king who has made a law that's pretty un... Uh, un how can you anticipate how he would react? You never know his mood. 
And if he's in a bad mood, you don't want to go into the king unannounced. Because if you go in unannounced, then uh, he can have your head. She's married to a man whose history tells us that he is unstable in his reactions. Interesting, he lost his fleet. I don't know if you're familiar with the geography just west of Istanbul, or basically, you know where Asia and Europe sort of, they almost touch in a couple of places. One is at Istanbul, and another is south. There's a real narrow strait called the Dardanelles, and there's a real narrow point of the Dardanelles where uh, Asia and, and Greece back then would, were real close, hardly a mile apart. King Ahasuerus built, or had his engineers build, a bridge, a floating bridge that went across there, and his army was to cross on that to fight Greece. Well, that's when that storm came, and it, it also affected his fleet, but the storm wrecked these, this bridge, and so he not only whipped the sea, but he also executed, he took the heads of the engineers. So guess the next group of engineers really said, you know, we need to get this right. Let's look at the weather and let's make sure we do this right. Well, Esther knew this. He, she, she knew of his uh, instability. She also remembered the history of queens. If queens don't do what they're supposed to do, they're gone. This is a fact, and this is a fact that this man has, has related. She knew that her position as queen was less secure than the position of the head coach of Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> you couldn't predict how he would respond. So, if she flagrantly breaks the law, she could very easily be killed, and certainly she could be replaced. Well, look at what Mordecai says in reply. Look at these great two verses, verse 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. What a great statement. What a great insight. Mordecai basically says, Esther, you've got nothing to lose. You will die for certain if you don't go in. So going in only gives you the chance that you might die, but the reality is you might live. And if we think on a higher level, it's very possible that you have attained royalty for this purpose. And again, somebody just reading the text wouldn't get it, but we who see God's hand in things hear what Mordecai is saying. Mordecai is saying, God, our sovereign God, may have you in this place for this very reason. And in fact, the question is asked in such a way that suggests that's exactly why you're there, Esther. Great statement. God's providence is at work. Now, keep your finger here in Esther and turn, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 17. I want to look at a great passage, a great couple of verses here, spoken from the Apostle Paul. Acts 17. 
What Mordecai said to Esther applies to all of us. It is a principle that was not only relevant to her there in Persia, just prior to the return to, to uh, Jerusalem, but it is something relevant to us. It was relevant in Paul's day, as we're about to see, and it's relevant in our day. Acts 17, look down at verse 26. In Acts 17, the context here is the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey. He's standing in Athens, and he is sharing with the intellectuals on Mars Hill. So he's talking about people who do not know the Lord, and he's talking about Jesus Christ. Acts 17, verse 26. Paul says, And he, meaning God, made from one man, meaning Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That is dense with great theology and a great reminder for us in our lives. Paul is saying that from one man came every man, from one person came every nation. And it also says that God has determined. So even from the time of Adam, even before the human race began, we're told that God has determined our appointed times. Sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, I, I, I wish I lived, I think I was born in the wrong century. I would have loved it in, you know, in the Old West, or I would have loved it if I'd been born in Europe back during the such and such a day and all that. Well, you've been watching too many movies if, if that's what you think. I mean, because the challenge is, even then, you're just you, and you, you or you are just you. Now, God, we're told that God hasn't made a mistake. God has determined our appointed times and the boundaries of our habitation. The time that we live and the place that we live has been determined for all of us even before the human race began. And here's the purpose, verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him Though, the reality is, he's not far from each one of us. And then Paul goes on to share Jesus Christ. But the point is, just as Mordecai told Esther, where you are is no accident. You may not like it, but it's no accident. Where God has you in your life, what you're dealing with right now, the length of your days, the place of your birth, your parents, your siblings, Everything about our lives that we do not control is part of God's grand sovereign plan, even the hard things. Esther was facing a hard thing, wasn't she? She wasn't given the privilege of being queen just so that she could have someone peel grapes for her. She was queen for such a time as this. All right, now turn once more to the right, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, and let's look at this principle a little more specifically. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 10. 
God's purposes, Mordecai says, will be done with or without you, Esther, but you are where you are today because God has given you the privilege of participating. You have the choice. If you choose to be silent, God will use somebody else, but God's purposes will be done. You have the privilege of participating, so don't be silent. In Ephesians 2, look at verse 10. Well, let's go ahead and read 8 and 9 since we're right there. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Verse 10. You know, verse 8 and 9 we're very familiar with because this is a couple of great verses that just talk about our salvation is not something we can earn. We can't stand before God one day and pull out our curriculum vitae or our uh, resume or all that we have that show our great works that would impress God. Because right along on the other side of that sheet is all of our sin. And it's actually probably a little longer than, than all we've done right. Along with our sin, uh, which can keep us out. But because of his rich mercy, being great in love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our transgressions, I'm reading verse 4 and 5, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's by grace. So, and it's not a result of works. But then in verse 10, we are his workmanship. The working that is being done is God's work in us. It's not our work for God to be saved, but his work in us, created in Christ Jesus. That's our beginning. And the purpose of that salvation is that we may live a life that results in good works. And notice that it says God prepared them beforehand. Once again, we're looking at the great, sovereign, providential hand of God in our lives. God has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for my life. And there are details in that purpose. It's not just this general blob of the Great Commission. But there are details in that. Good works, plural, which God prepared beforehand. God has good works prepared for my life and for your life that we may walk in them. And that's our choice if we're going to follow through with that. Esther, you can turn back to Esther. She found herself in a place of influence, providentially set, providentially placed to do what is right in a culture and under leadership that was dead set on doing wrong. Our lives are very much the same. God has gifted us to serve him. Now, it's pretty easy for us to think, you know, I'm in a pretty big church. I'm in a fairly big class. I'm not really as gifted as a lot of the other people that I see serving God. What, I, what can I really do? I mean, really, what difference can I make? I come, I don't come doesn't matter. I serve, I don't serve, it doesn't matter. The reality is it really does because God is able to take what we do 
and maybe not immediately, but like a seed planted, makes it grow and makes it, makes it bud. I've had um, some people, I do writing, I've done writing and blogging for a long time. I have a blog that's been going for a long time. And I've actually taught some classes on blogging. And one of the students, several, a common question that students ask it are, or is, students ask is, <laughs> it's the curse of being a writer. You're always evaluating your verb tenses. So anyway, sometimes they ask a question. Why should I blog on such and so? Often like apologetics or uh, Bible discussion or Bible devotions or things like that. So many blogs already out there. What difference can I possibly make? And it was once explained to me, and it changed the way I view the reality of ministry, not just blogging, but everything in ministry. And, and the answer is that that's true. There are a lot of people talking about uh, apologetics, but nobody is talking about it like you will. God has designed your life to speak to a certain niche of people that no one else can touch. You are able to get your hands on people and to minister to them in a way that nobody else can. So yeah, we've got the same 66 books of the Bible. We've got the same verses to work with. But with the amazing variety of the body of Christ, you take this Bible and put it in the life of each of these individuals, and all of a sudden we have an infinite number of possibilities to be able to minister to anybody that the Lord leads us to. And God will lead us to people. I've had people from foreign countries write me and say, thank you for writing such and so. Then they'll mention whatever it was. And it's just like this email just pops in my inbox one day. I had no idea what God was doing over in New Zealand. And the same can be true in your life. Remember when Barnabas was standing here and he said that somebody on a college campus just happened to hand him a Bible. And that, per that person had no idea of the impact that that simple act would have. But God knew. And God knows what our simple acts will, will result in. One person can make an amazing difference. This is what Mordecai was telling Esther. Interesting, another man named Mordecai, uh, his name was Mordecai Ham. Have you heard of Mordecai Ham? It's a great name. You think about the irony of that. You get a Jewish name with Ham. But Mordecai Ham. He is, a, he is an evangelist or was an evangelist. It wasn't, it's not really well known, though he had a very significant impact back in the day. But Mordecai Ham is the one that converted Billy Graham. And of course, everyone knows Billy Graham. But without Mordecai Ham, there's no Billy Graham. Without the work that you are doing, that seems so small and insignificant, the results of that may not happen. God will use somebody else. He's given us a great privilege not to see necessarily the fruit of our works, this side of glory, but to, be, to participate in faith, knowing, Lord, I don't have to see everything that you're doing through me. I just have to trust that you're working. That's why he gives us the scripture. That's why he gives us occasionally insights that are going on in the lives of, of other people and even our own to encourage us. Yep, God's working. There's proof, there's proof, there's proof, there's proof, and here's all this proof. And so we know he's doing the same in our lives. 
I love the phrase, anybody can count the seeds in an apple, only God can count the apples in a seed. And he does it. Edward Everett Hale, listen to this quote. He said, I am only one, but still I am one. I can't do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. You heard that story about the old man walking on the beach, sees this kid throwing starfish into the, into the ocean. Great story. Tide had gone out, left all these starfish stranded. It's like a hundred, more than a hundred starfish. And this little boy is frantically picking up starfish and throwing them back into the ocean. And the old man comes up to him and says, son, what are you doing? He said, I'm saving the lives of all these starfish. He said, you know, there are hundreds of starfish right here. Tossing a few back in doesn't really matter. And he picked up a starfish and said, it matters to this one. <laughs> and the old man joined him, picking up starfish and throwing them in the, in the ocean. Because it matters to that one. And God can make a big difference in the life of one person to multiply. Where has God sovereignly placed us? Well, for Esther, it was being married to a, a lunatic who would also, she would be very influential in preserving the life of uh, her people. But for us, he's placed us in families, in neighborhoods, in jobs, in churches, at gas stations, at grocery stores, at restaurants, on airplanes, you name it. Anytime we have the opportunity to have the incredible influence of one, God puts us there. But we've all got stuff to do. Believe me, I got plenty to do. And so do you. We have lists a mile long. And those lists will often get in the way of us doing, reaching out. Um, I have a wonderful wife who loves to reach out. And she, I wouldn't say drags me, but she very influential in a very gracious way makes me more effective by encouraging me to do what I wouldn't normally do and that's reach out. Uh, so we'll do that usually <laughs> at her encouragement. She's great with that. But the reality is I can find a lot of reasons, a lot of good reasons and so can you. And we'll often say, you know what, I agree with you 100%. Mordecai, you're exactly right. But, but Mordecai's words said, you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Not for such a time as someday, not for such a time as when you're not quite as busy, because at that time you're going to be busy too. There's always going to be a good reason to not serve the Lord. Such a time as this, meaning today. Well, look back at what Esther says, at her wonderful response here, verse 15, Esther 4:15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and all my maidens will also fast in the same way, and thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. If I die, Esther says, at least I'm going to do it following God's lead. And Esther models a wonderful principle here. And the principle is a great principle for our lives as well. And that's this, to never presume upon providence, but prepare your plans with prayer. Yes, God is sovereign, but in some amazing way, he also wants us to prepare our plans with prayer. To presume on the providence of God without also praying. I don't think we can reconcile that in our minds. God's either 100% sovereign or he's not. Well, he is 100% sovereign. But part of his sovereignty somehow includes our participation in our prayer. Esther says, go and fast for me. Hint, hint, pray for me. Which is what she's saying. Even though they recognized that God's sovereignty would happen, either from Esther or from somebody else, Esther still requested three days of prayer before she went into the king. God's sovereignty doesn't negate our efforts to depend on him. They work together. Now, we won't read the end of the story, but I'll save that for you to read on your own. But I'll give you a little spoiler alert. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. That's the way it works. And the real hero of the story, of course, is not Mordecai. It's not even Esther. It's God. Because we see his hand all over what are seeming coincidences in this book. And I wish we had time to read the... Uh, oh, we got a little time. Let's look at chapter 6, and let's just look at a couple of verses here because it's really funny. It's uh, all just almost comical. Well, it's designed to be comical, I think. But... Haman is, is frustrated that Mordecai won't, um, won't bow down, and so they decide, well, let's, uh, uh, let's build a gallows at the end of chapter 5. Let's build a gallows, and we'll have Mordecai hanged on the gallows. So, um, and I love it, build a gallows 50 cubits high. I mean, that, that'll kill him. That'll kill him more than if it's just 10 cubits high. Make it 50 cubits high. This is really going to get him. Well, then God's sovereignty kicks in. Look at chapter 6. Let's just read a little bit of this because it's really great. During the night, the king could not sleep. During that night, so providence, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found, or you could insert, it just so happened to be found, written that Mordecai had reported concerning this guy and that guy, two king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court. Seems like a coincidence, doesn't it? Just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant says, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. The king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What's to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman says to himself, Look at this, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? <laughs> Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, all, and then he says, All this good stuff needs to happen. There are lots of good stuff. 
Then verse 10, the king says, Take quickly the robes and the horses you have said, and do for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So this is just a God's providence kicking in. And it's this point that's really the turning point of the story. Everything was going against the Jews up to this point, and now from this point on, now it begins to go in the Jews' favor. God's sovereignty is overarching. In this story, God's sovereignty is overarching in our lives as well. Someone has once said that a coincidence is a miracle in which God decides to remain anonymous. A coincidence is a miracle in which God decides to remain anonymous. You know, it's like our lives are like Esther. We don't often see God working, but he's there. And if we look back, we can see his unmistakable hand in our lives without exception. One person can make a difference, and convinced of that, we don't presume upon prayer. We don't presume upon providence, but we pray and we prepare our plans with prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, any person plus you is a majority. When we place our trust in you, we know that you can work in us and through us to do a work that is far greater than we can ever ask or imagine. We think back in our lives at the many people that you've brought across our path, how you have powerfully affected our lives through simple people like teachers like friends, like parents, like pastors. Simple people, nothing exceptional, except they were simply willing to be used by you, and you did use them. Father, as you take us through this week and the months and even years to follow, help us remember Mordecai's words that we are where we are for such a time as this. You have sovereignly prepared beforehand good works that we're to walk in. You have determined the limitations, the boundaries of our days, and the number of our days. Everything about our lives has been predetermined by your plan, even though somehow we have decisions that affect uh, what happens in our lives. Your sovereign hand is also very much involved. We don't understand how that mixes, but we do trust you. 100% that it does. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the privilege of participating. And thank you that Esther chose not to remain silent. Help us as you provide opportunities for us, not only to speak your word, but also to serve you, whether it's a big service or a little service, whether it's something as small as Mordecai Ham sharing the gospel or something as large as Billy Graham giving a crusade. Help us be faithful, and we'll trust that you'll take that little apple seed and that you'll make so many more apple trees come from it. We know that you can. We pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.